I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. Uh, If you followed uh, any of the other podcasts, especially the last couple uh, topic ones, you'll notice that I am, uh, I always say I am two recovery for the Jesus people and two Jesus for the recovery people and two recovery for the harm reduction people and two harm reduction for the recovery people. So it's kind of a weird spot to be in, but I am still trying to figure out harm reduction. And uh, to help me in that discussion, I have Chad Sabora, who I would say is one of the, probably the country's best experts, biggest experts on harm reduction. So, Chad, introduce yourself. <laughs> uh, David, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is uh, Chad Zabora. I'm also a person in long-term recovery uh, since uh, June 9th, 2011. Uh, I'm a former prosecutor uh, from Chicago, Illinois, who now lives in St. Louis, Missouri. And I am the co-founder and executive director of what we call a hybrid recovery community center where we involve harm reduction as part of the continuum of care as we treat our consumers uh, that either struggle with substance use disorder, are in recovery from substance use disorder, or and loved ones, family members that are dealing with an individual in either case, either still actively using or in recovery. Okay, so me and you have had many, many discussions uh, I say I, I've trained, I wouldn't even want to get into how many people I have Narcan trained over the past few years. And I actually, you were the first person that I ever saw do a Narcan training. Um, also, whenever I struggle with some of the concepts of harm reduction, you're the person that I tend to go to. Uh, I know that there's things I've struggled with and you have filled my inbox with study after study after study and that's one thing i've never been able to argue against is research i'm a big fan of research over anecdotal experiences so i I know that's been helpful but you've watched harm reduction grow over the last eight years in fact i'm sure you watched it you're from chicago so that was one of the birthplaces in our country really I would, I mean, birthplaces for, you know, uh, naloxone distribution. So harm reduction in this country, I mean, we can, we can go back to 1968 when they put uh, seatbelts in cars as one of the first harm reduction um, um, actions um, that occurred because it encompasses all, all areas of life, not just people uh, that use substance use, whether recreationally or with problematic consequences. And I'm losing myself there. So, um, but the birth of the harm reduction movement um, for people that use drugs really came from the HIV epidemic in the 80s. Um, that's when the first um, tier of harm reduction warriors um, came together. Um, and their goal was to reduce the spread of HIV. Um, heroin use, IV drug use, 
has been an issue in this country since the 1890s. <coughs> um, however, it was never a forefront issue. It was never an epidemic. I mean, it slightly was in the 70s following the Vietnam War. Um, but the, the real goals in, in, in those beginning movements uh, were, were around um, access to condoms um, for individuals engaging in risky sexual behavior and access to needles uh, for individuals that may have been sharing needles. Uh, so that was the birth of the substance use harm reduction moves uh, in this country. But other harm reduction in, uh, around the world date back to uh, the opening of the first uh, syringe access program in Switzerland in the mid-70s and the opening of the first uh, safe injection, safe whatever you want to call it, safe injection, safe consumption site in Bern, Switzerland in 1986. <coughs> um, so these models, these philosophies, uh, these attitudes towards people who use drugs uh, is nothing new. Right. Uh, Chicago was the birthplace of naloxone distribution uh, by a gentleman who's recently passed named Dan Big, uh, who, f who, who founded Any Positive Change and the Chicago Recovery Alliance. Um, and he gave the first active heroin user a vial of Narcan in Chicago in 1996. Uh, he is responsible for almost every Narcan distribution program in this country um, up to the federal grants that recently came down that allowed to expand uh, purchasing um, and access to naloxone. Prior to that, almost all the connections, the supplies, everything uh, came out of Dan Big and his uh, warehouse in Chicago. Okay. And that's why I kind of said I thought it was birthed out of Illinois was because of Dan. So, so as it's grown, it has... Uh, I don't know. I, I think that there, it can work so well with recovery, but it seems like there's also some clashes. Yes. With recovery, uh, you know, I've experienced some of those. Uh, I talked to somebody while I was in Vegas that I don't know why I let somebody get my goat, but I was talking about the recovery community center and opening up a separate location or doing a mobile if we uh, okayed, if we got a syringe access okay. passed in our state. And uh, this kid looked at me, and he's like, well, so you're not open to multiple pathways. And I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? And he's like, well, if you're not going to do that there in your center, then you're not open to multiple pathways. And I, went, I would disagree with that. And he kind of got my goat. Yeah. you know. Um, but I think it's almost like politics. You have one side that's taking recovery to recovery is, you know, they spin it their way, right? Recovery is just being clean and being abstinent, and that's all that really matters. And then you've got the other side that says, well, you know, I can have chaotic use. And if I say I'm in recovery, I'm in recovery. And I think the truth falls somewhere in the middle. It does. Like it does on both discussions. And I think sometimes we get caught up uh, in either our feelings or in our uh, beliefs. And our anecdotal visuals. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so I contacted you not long ago about recovery and that word recovery because I guess entering into recovery I worked treatment for eight and a half years and I have just come over the last several years um, onto kind of the recovery advocacy side I guess I did it a little bit while I was still a therapist but as a therapist when I think of recovery I think of that holistic change now, I can see it with medication. I can see, you know, I consider somebody who is prescribed medication in recovery, period. It's not they don't have medicated-assisted re uh, recovery any more than I have Jesus-assisted recovery. It's just recovery. Correct. You know, 
and I struggled uh, because I see it as the entire all-encompassing thing. And there's the discussion that, you know, somebody's in recovery if they... Um, say they're in recovery. If they, well, not just if they say they're in recovery, but, you know, somebody's in recovery. And, and I'm okay with that one. If somebody wants to say they're in recovery, but I had somebody say, well, you know, I believe I've heard you say it. You know, where if somebody is going to a syringe access and they're in recovery... And I struggled with that. Right, because you're using the absolute definition of recovery based on your clinical experience. So the, 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 the people you're going to see in a clinical setting are the, the, the minority. The 10% of people that use substance use that develop severe problematic chaotic consequences to their use that's who you're going to see they do not represent the whole picture of people that use substances they don't even represent the whole picture of use subs of people that use substances with some problems um, some some chaotic use they represent that far end spectrum so that's where you're basing this definition of recovery on is this absolute thing but for others it is going to look different you know and and when i say someone that uses a needle exchange program is in recovery i'm not saying they're in recovery from problematic substance use i'm saying they're in recovery from a risky behavior that could spread uh, uh blood pathogen disorders such as hepatitis c or hiv that's what they are in recovery from and they are um, now, I don't want to say somebody's in recovery and then add this whole dialogue of what they're in recovery from, but that person is in recovery from that area. Now, what can we work on next? Right. Know, can we work on, okay, let's work on putting you in recovery from risky behavior that could cause you an overdose. Good. Okay, now we've got that done. Okay, because a lot of the times we have to walk very slowly with people. And there are people out there right now that will use substances to the day they die, and they will have no problematic use whatsoever. And maybe for a year or two in their lives, they'll have a physical dependence on an opioid. It'll cause some problems, and they are successfully able to put down the opioid. So, now, these people will successfully be able to put down the opioid, but continue to drink alcohol and smoke marijuana without returning to problematic opioid or use. Those people exist without a doubt 100%. So for those people, I would say, yes, they are in recovery because you know the opposite of recovery is problematic chaotic substance use. So if dr having a beer once in a while with dinner, a glass of wine or smoking pot on the weekend doesn't cause problematic substance use, are they falling into that category that would require a recovery definition? I would say no. Their heroin use, opiate use, that cause those problematic issues, yes, then that, the, the, the abstaining from that drug qualifies them to be in recovery. I'll use my dad, for example. My dad got sober from heroin in 1970. Long before he met my mom, had me, he was a clinician and then an executive at Gateway Foundation, uh, which is a very large treatment center. My dad, um, I saw him drunk. He never picked up opiates after... 1970 after I met my mom and funny side note for those listening that may they may follow the William White papers My dad was actually Bill White's counselor in treatment um, That's pretty sick of you. Um, <laughs> so my I saw my dad drunk once in his life um, uh, There was booze in our home um, Sunday night dinners my dad would have one glass of wine he didn't smoke pot and probably, I don't think he ever really did when he was using drugs in the 60s and 70s. I think he was just a heroin addict. Um, and I will qualify my dad as somebody that died 35 years in recovery. So does, does the, he, since he was able to put down the substance that caused cataract use and still occasionally have a glass of wine or a beer at a social event, he was in recovery. 
And I can't see anybody arguing any different. No DUIs, no problems with marriage, no problems with work, no problems with anything, no drinking to intoxication, except maybe once or twice. So when I look at my father's story, how can we not see that as, as truth? Right. Because there's no, uh, there's no addiction. Because I always think, like the difference between dependence and addiction, yeah. addiction is continued use despite negative consequences. Exactly. So, Exactly. So this is a very, this isn't black and white, you know, it's, not, it's especially not black and white with our advice to loved ones now when our drug supply has been poisoned by fentanyl. You know, people are talking about, oh, you kick them out, do this, do that. No, we don't have those choices anymore. Right. You know, when I, um, you know, when I was using um, fentanyl was very hard to come by. Um, but now these, these kids using right now, they're not going to have the, um, and I'm going to call the benefit of multiple bottoms. I hate the word bottoms, but I'm going to use it because it's a term that people understand. They're not going to have the benefit of getting arrested a few times, of picking up 20 different white key tags, of having the families kick them out, of losing They will die before they get the consequences that you and I got that led to our recovery. So we have to change our approach to the whole thing. Well, didn't you guys, not to interrupt, but didn't you guys test uh, a, multiple samples yeah. whenever the drug policy, uh, when the big... Uh, yeah, yeah, we had a, a mass spectrometer, and we bought... Dr- God, I'm admitting to a felony. Um, s- not somebody we, <laughs> somebody we know happened to have in their possession um, uh, capsules of what was believed to be heroin. Uh, those capsules were tested by a, a drug testing mass spectrometer and no heroin and capsules from the same um, batch the same dealer ranged from three to forty percent fentanyl concentration um, dealers in st louis are not necessarily adding the fentanyl it's being put in long before it gets up here they're still following the drug cutting protocol of heroin which is utilizing a coffee grinder you cannot cut fentanyl with a coffee grinder um, it just does not work. Uh, it does the, the density is different. The disbursement, how it works, there are other drug cutting methods um, <clears throat> that have have to be used in order to properly cut that drug, and they're not being used, which is creating a uh, great um, difference in even the same batches uh, from scary. dose to dose. Very scary. But then, you know, as a harm reductionist, <clears throat> I have to be uh, uh, pragmatic about the situation and not live in denial because that's a lot of our drug policy is living in denial. Right. Um, people, fentanyl is here. Fentanyl is not going anywhere, anytime soon. So what are our choices as activists, as outreach workers, as people trying to save people's lives and get them into recovery? Do we let them continue to utilize a very dangerous cutting system? Or do we try to find out the safest way for people to ingest that drug that they want to ingest despite all our pleadings, despite the family's pleadings, despite the options put in front of them. Until they are ready, they will continue to use that substance. So isn't it our job to find a safer way for them to use that substance that is not enabling? And I've been called an enabler for that. But there has to be a middle ground where we can all meet at where we can say yes the yeah, fentanyl represents our opioid supply now the current route of administration and cutting agents that are being used are deadly they could be safer it makes perfect sense in my mind right and, and that's something i think i'm with you on i mean we stock at the sprinkled recovery community center we have 
Narcan and Narcan trainings. We have fentanyl test strips. I will continue to go to Jeff City and um, testify and talk to the senators and state reps that I run into about uh, syringe access and why it's vital to what we have. You know, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I think uh, whenever you look at it on paper, it's a no-brainer. Uh, yeah. Fiscally. Uh, fiscally, I mean. Health-wise, I mean, uh, compassionately, I mean, I don't think that there's a single way it doesn't make sense. And what amazes me, like, I live in Springfield. You live in St. Louis. It's a little more uh, progressive, a little more liberal. Um, I live basically in the buckle of the Bible Belt. I mean, it is conservative. Christian and the lack of compassion I see from so many people in my community amazes me. I mean, there's some amazing people in my community, but overall, it amazes me how ignorant and compassionless people are uh, whenever it comes to uh, addiction and substance misuse and re- even recovery. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, I think that, that, that I put that a lot on the recovery side. I think far too long people in recovery have stayed anonymous and not been visible and vocal in their communities once they've gotten better. And because of that, when people hear about substance use, they don't think about people coming out on the other side. They Correct. think of all the negatives. Yeah, they do. And also people that are in recovery that are choosing to, 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 to recover out loud, they have to be careful not to, 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 to further stigmatize their own disorder. Language is important. Medications are important. Harm reduction is important. But it's like we're getting backlash for our efforts from the general public that's very ignorant. And then we're also getting backlash from the recovery community calling us enablers. Um, I heard um, uh, there's a meeting format called Medication Assisted Recovery Anonymous, right? Um, and that includes all medications. That includes people using medical marijuana. Um, and I heard a, a gentleman that I know in recovery say, why don't we just call it Active Addiction Anonymous? And the amount of ignorance behind that just blows my mind because they do not still comprehend the fact that somebody can use a recreational substance with no significant consequences. And just because of the DEA scheduling of that substance, they are deciding on the validity of that person's pathways. So if the DEA came out today and said, okay, we're going to make marijuana schedule four and we're going to make, um, um, give give me a good schedule four um, substance. I'm thinking off the top of my head. Um, um, And we're going to make just a random schedule four um, and we're going to make Prozac a schedule one. Okay, so we're gonna do a we're gonna do a huge switch today. We're gonna to make uh, marijuana is now a Schedule Four substance, prescribable refills, yada yada yada. Prozac is now a Schedule One. Everybody, in most people in recovery, would quickly just flip. Well, okay, well, okay, well now, okay, it's okay if you're on marijuana, but if you're on Prozac, you're not clean. You know, it's like we we, we give so much weight to the FDA and DEA's classifications that are riddled with BS. Right. And, and we give weight to an agonist. For, and when we talk about MAT medications, such as buprenorphine, methadone, or naltrexone, they put so much validity on, well, these two, methadone and buprenorphine, are agonists. They're not okay. Okay, well, this one, Vivitrol, that's an antagonist. That's okay for you to take. All right, all right, Junior, well, let's look at the data. The data for being on an agonist versus an antagonist, blows it away. I mean, every single 
research study out there shows that methadone or buprenorphine destroys, gives some people a much better chance of recovery in life than Vivitrol. But you want people to risk their lives over your personal opinions that are not based on science. And it just blows my mind. Yeah. Because we see, you see it as well as I do. I see I'm not. It. O- I'm not okay with Suboxone, but I'm okay with you taking Vivitrol. Well, you're not a doctor. It's none of your business. And what amazes me is I see therapists in treatment centers that are primarily 12-step treatment centers, um, and they they mostly come from a 12-step background themselves. But I'm like, you're in active recovery. And you're a therapist, and yet you're this ignorant when it comes to the benefits of medication. Yeah. You know, I mean, every study you look at, what, people live longer? Um, and, and they also go to more meetings. They, they tend to be more likely to have a sponsor and work steps yeah. if they're on medication than if they have an opioid use disorder and they're not on medication. But here's the thing about meetings, and we have data to back this up. Um, if somebody wants to go to meetings, it is 100% without a doubt going to make their recovery stronger. However, if somebody is adamant, dead set against going to 12-step meetings and they're forced to, it's going to make it worse. Well, if you force me to do anything. Yeah. But, I mean, we just have the data to back these things up. Um, And yet, people are still forced to attend 12-step meetings by the criminal justice system, uh, which is a violation of, you know, constitutional rights. There's cases, case law on this now that most people are ignoring. Yet, we have to offer them some clinical options. But we we have to stop putting barriers in front of getting access to medication. Um, You know, um, overeating, um, food, food, food addictions are just as valid work same part of the brain um, as drug addiction, without a doubt. There's Overeaters Anonymous, it's, you know, however, if I have substance use disorder and I go to a doctor to get my medication to save my life, I will be given barriers. I will be given, you have to do this, 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 this to get your medication, all right? No marijuana, no benzos, unless I prescribe them, right? Now let's take the overeater that suffers from the same brain disorder, as the drug user, I need to go to my doctor to get cholesterol medication. There are no barriers. You don't have to go to any meetings. You come back, your lipids come back showing that you ate McDonald's for two weeks straight. Even the doctor told you not to eat McDonald's for two weeks straight. Guess what? The doctor will not cut off your life-saving medication. Right. But they'll do it for the substance user that doesn't follow the doctor's protocols and may go smoke marijuana. What is, there's no difference whatsoever. Well, is there really a difference between doctors having to jump through hoops or even having to have separate buildings for like an OBOT? You know, I mean, look at all the the hoops a doctor has to jump through in order to prescribe methadone or buprenorphine. Yeah, our methadone and buprenorphine restrictions from the federal government are killing people. Almost every other civilized country, you can dose methadone at a pharmacy. And we do not allow that here. Um, you know, I, say you live in Jefferson County, Missouri, and you need to be on methadone. It's th- you can't even take buses to the methadone clinic. With the way our transit system is set up, there's no way to get to the methadone clinic depending on where you live. It, it is just, we, our policies kill people. Well, in a lot of communities, there isn't. Yeah. And you may not have a doctor that's wavered in a lot of communities for you either. Right. You know, it definitely, I agree with you whenever it comes to uh, barriers that we put up. You know, I think you guys recently, uh, you helped write a, a bill that I didn't think was needed uh, because I worked in treatment court in Greene County, and in Greene County, we had a judge that was actually educated. Yeah. 
And I didn't realize that we still had judges in the state of Missouri that were either you. demanding people get off their medication before they would allow them into treatment court or telling them they couldn't graduate as long as they were on their medication. It wasn't just treatment court, veterans court, mental health court, safety court, family court situations. Yeah, so we had to put a law on the books in Missouri saying judges could no longer dictate the use of methadone or buprenorphine as a um, requirement to enter a program or to successfully graduate a program. Um, and we still have a lot to fix, but I'm, I think we're getting off topic from harm reduction. Well, I think that that's part of harm reduction, though. No, I mean, it is. It is. His lobbying for those bills, and maybe lobbying is a bad word, advocating yeah. for those bills so that we can get bills that actually prolong life. You know, <clears throat> but yeah, getting back to what we were originally talking about, I think uh, whenever we talked on the phone, I realized that. It was semantics. It was tomato, tomato. Yeah. You know, what you called uh, recovery from a harmful behavior, I called a making healthier choices. So literally, I mean, we're just throwing different words at it. Yeah. But sometimes I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to intentionally annoy the old timers by using that recovery word because I want to, I I believe it's a benefit when somebody challenges your core beliefs and makes you think. You've got guys that have been in this policy world, I won't mention names, for 20 plus years who are dead set in their ways. Um, They need, some of these people need to be shaken up a little bit, pissed off a little bit. Um, So I'm going to do some things that may seem controversial, but it's just an opportunity to shake you out of that that, that complacency you found yourself in doing the same thing, pushing for the same recovery policies for 20 years, we have to be bra- more brazen. We have to be more progressive. So, you know, some of it is my true beliefs and some of it are just tactics to, to shake some things up with people and say, listen, let's look at this different. You right. know, let's treat people different. Let's, let's start giving people that use drugs actively jobs at RCCs, at OBOTs, at, recover- at other places. Let's employ them. They are a valuable resource as far as what's going on in the in the in the using community. Uh, you've been sober ten years. Yeah, I've been sober eight. I have no idea anymore. You know what it's like out, what there. It's like out there. We 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 have a valuable resource, and in the Loxone distribution in itself, eighty five percent of all overdose reversals are done by peers, fellow drug users. You know we have to we have to reeducate people. We were educated, you and I. Growing up, the drug users are like the Tasmanian devil, run around, complete destruction, don't care about life or death, you know, and some of that is true. You know, and I think that's one of the problems. But some of that is true, however, however, despite our chaotic drug use, despite that we will choose drugs over everything else, we don't want to die. And we do not want to contract a, a, a disease. Right. That is why we and that is why we know that people will use needle change programs. Drug users will save each other's lives. Um, people that use safe inje- uh, <clears throat> there's a safe injection site in Vancouver, British Columbia called OnSite. They have 487 visits a day. So we know that when given these tools, drug users will use them. <laughs> you know, because one of the biggest blowbacks you and I get when we push these progressive policies is no drug users are going to use those services. They don't care. No, they do. Let's re-educate people about this disorder right? and about the behaviors that come with the disorder. Will I rob for you? Rob from you? Yes. Will I say horrible things in the grips of my addiction? Yes, without a doubt. It is not me. <laughs> but will I do everything I can to preserve my life? Because deep down inside, someday I want recovery? Yes. Yeah, I think that uh, when you talk about the place in Vancouver, 
I want to say I saw a study uh, that was talking about, well, it was an article that talked about the first year it was open. Yeah. And I think what really stood out to me is they had like, I think it was like 247 overdoses yeah. the first year that they yeah. were open. Yeah. And they reversed every single one of them. Yeah. So that's 247 people that got a second chance. That's 247 kids that went home to their parents yeah. that their parents didn't have to bury. So, I mean, I think that's part of the positive. And there's no increase in drug use with these facilities. Crime doesn't go up or go down. Um, that's a wash. Um, however, people, it is a pathway to treatment. And sometimes when we say multiple pathways, we're also meaning multiple pathways to get into treatment. Okay, right. so multiple pathways could be an arrest, a family intervention, rock bottom, a needle change program, a safe consumption site. There's many multiple pathways to get help. Safe consumption sites are definitely one of them. You know, people blast them saying they don't save lives. There were 486 overdoses last week there. Yeah, but nobody died. Right. So there's a bad batch of drugs going around Vancouver right now. People use there. Nobody died there. And right next to on-site is Insight. Insight is a uh, medical detox program where people can just walk right in there and get help. I mean, these systems work. They've been around in Europe since, like I said, the first safe injection site opened in Bern, Switzerland in 1986 at an old coffee shop. Um, there are 114 currently operating around the world. More are opening. IV drug use is taken over. It's not taboo anymore. Uh, we, we have to have pragmatic solutions um, for these kids. I remember the first time I assessed a kid who told me the very first drug he ever used was heroin IV. Yeah. You know, uh, because generally people come in and the first drug they ever tried, generally alcohol. Tobacco. You know? I mean, you might get somebody who's like, you know, I did a line or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, to come in and be like, yeah, the first thing I ever did, I did IV. It was like, what the heck? I mean, it, it is. It's almost become the end thing. Yeah. Yeah. It has, unfortunately. <clears throat> and if we're going to save lives and be effective advocates in what we do, we can't have blinders on saying um, recovery is great. You know, go to a meeting. I mean, I mean, how many times did people tell that to me and you? I still, you know, uh, I'm one of those weird people. Okay. I do everything different. Okay. Um, I don't go to meetings, All even right. though I have a ton but of I'm meetings saying, after recovery. I'm just saying, how many times did people tell you, get help, get help, get, you know, it's like, it's going to take what it takes. Meeting makers make it, so obviously I should be high right now because I don't go to meetings, yeah. you know. I'm also one of those weird people with mental health diagnosis that doesn't medicate my mental health diagnosis, which it's weird, always been weird to me, where addiction, if you take your medication, they're like, you're, you're, you're not well. Yeah. And with mental health, if you do take your, your, your medication, if you don't take your medication, you're not well. So you're not well. You know? So the truth is, uh, it, it's definitely up to a, a person's choice. Yeah. You know, the medication or not medication. And I think there's far too many people weighing in. I know parents that have buried their kids because their kid went to a meeting and was ridiculed for picking up a six month key tag and then admitting that uh, and then saying, yeah, I've got the six months thanks to Suboxone. Suboxone. Yeah. And literally, I know two teenagers that are dead now within 48 hours of a meeting where they were just roasted by everybody there. Yeah. You know, because now, guess what? Everybody there preaches at the kid as it goes around the circle and tells him what a piece of crap he is and how he's not really clean. Yeah, and then you have other people that are are known in the recovery circle, known on social media, that run around making these memes, making fun of people on Suboxone. It's like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. You know, we, we, we have a medication that is saving people's lives, and, you know, you're stigmatizing a disease that's already stigmatized, and you you suffer from this disease. You don't agree with it? Fine, don't. It's like the old adage. You don't agree with 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 guns? Don't own a gun. Don't agree with gay marriage? Don't. 
don't marry the same sex. Don't agree with abortion. Don't have one. Don't agree with medication. Don't take it. But stop judging other people because that goes against the core principles of the program that we work. There's a quote by Bill W. Um, it was in one of the grapevines. I think it's from the 60s when he was somewhere. In, I think it was in Canada. Yeah. And he literally, and he basically said, I'll just summarize it. If anybody wants information on it, get a hold of me and I will be more than happy to send it to you. But he basically said that his biggest fear was that there would become a rigid dogma yeah. in the community that would look at it like our way is the only way. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And would marginalize everybody else. And unfortunately, I think that has definitely happened. I tend to see it actually more in the, on the NA side than the AA side. Yeah, it's, it's and very strange, too. But, yeah, um, if, if Bill W. and Dr. Bob were alive today, I believe they would, they would be very disheartened of what's happened to their program. Yeah. Without a doubt, especially in, especially when it comes to medication, you know, especially since Bill W. and uh, the father of methadone treatment, Dr. Vincent Toll, were close friends. You know, for those listening to this that don't know this fact, uh, methadone maintenance treatment started at Rikers Island in the 50s by a guy named Dr. DuPont, just as a whim. Um, then it was picked up by uh, Dr. Vincent Toll in the, in the 60s who re- really, really created the um, OTP program with MMT. Uh, Dr. Dole sat on the board of trustees for Alcoholics Anonymous. He and Bill were friends. Bill W. Um, asked Dr. Dole to create a version of methadone for alcoholics. As Bill described it, it was for the uh, alcoholics who could not stay sober long enough uh, to experience the uh, spiritual awakening of working the 12 steps. You know, so there's a lot of misinformation out there. And one of the biggest things that grinds my gears, if I'm going to talk like Peter Griffin. Um, <laughs> and why wouldn't you? Yeah, is um, I hear people on Facebook saying that uh, methadone and Suboxone was designed for detox. It should only be used for detox. Methadone, uh, neither drugs were ever invented to treat opiate use disorder. Methadone was invented in the 50s during a poppy shortage during World War II. Uh, it was also a great drug to give uh, soldiers since you could dose once a day. Um, and then it was, um, as an experiment, basically, um, used on prisoners in Rikers Island to see if they could treat their heroin addiction. So it was never intended for detox. Um, its first experiment being used was intended for maintenance. Suboxone was invented, or buprenorphine was invented in the 70s in the UK as a safer painkiller because it's a partial agonist that doesn't fully suppress the respiratory system. Um, It's a horrible analgesic. It does not work well as a painkiller, so they scrapped it. However, since it has a very long um, long half-life, much like methadone, um, they started doing experiments, seeing if they could use it to treat substance use disorder, and the data was, was very powerful behind it. I would say more powerful than methadone. Uh, in my opinion, I believe to this day the only reason that the methadone data still surpasses the buprenorphine data is because there's 50 more years of it. Uh, but as far as the outcomes, they're very similar. And um, since buprenorphine is a partial agonist, you cannot overdose on it. I do believe to be the safer alternative. Uh, methadone is great. I put a lot of people on methadone. I put a lot of people on Vivitrol. And I direct a lot of people, just get your ass to a 12-step meeting. Um, it just depends on the person. Right. So going back really quick, I do want to say that I, <clears throat> I know a lot of people hear the beep thing. Yeah. 
and they're like, well, I can't overdose on this, but still, I mean, you can still override that through synergy, through mixing. Yeah, I mean, you can. You know, on and, its and that's one thing I want to put out there. Yeah, on its own, absolutely. right? On its own, you cannot you cannot have full respiratory suppression on a partial opioid agonist, which buprenorphine is. And that's How, amazing. Yeah. However, if you combine another another respiratory suppressant on top of that drug, be it alcohol or benzodiazepines, yes, you could experience an overdose. Same with a lot of the misinformation that's going around with a, a herb called Kratom. Kratom is impossible on its own to overdose on. It has a dormant antagonist um, that only gets activated upon overuse, which will make the user sick, vomit, feel uncomfortable, and they will not physically be able to take any more of the medication. So another drug you cannot overdose on. However, if I'm using Kratom with methadone, with with uh, Xanax, with alcohol, yes, that poly substance use could cause um, respiratory suppression and death. But it's on its own. So those drugs cannot cause death. And that's why I think it's one of the I hate to say it. Well, I don't hate to say it, actually. I think it's one of the best medications we have out there because it doesn't matter if you take 32 milligrams or 320 milligrams. Your body's only going to process 32 milligrams that day. It's still going to hit that ceiling, and that ceiling is going to save lives. Yes. You know, um, I was going to say something about Bupe, and then I started listening to you, and I was just like, wow, this guy's kind of smart. So, um, and I completely forgot what I was going to say. Um, Oh. There's also this belief that in a lot of the communities that it's a short-term thing. And from every study that I have ever seen, it doesn't matter if somebody is titrated off uh, bup at two weeks, one month, three months, six months, one year, their uh, recurrence to use and their risk of overdose increases every single time that they're removed. That doesn't mean that some people aren't going to reach that point on their own where they say, hey, I want to discontinue. But there's too many people that don't have MD after their name that are trying to make medical decisions for somebody and it's lethal. So um, there is zero difference on the data from three days detox up to three months. Zero difference. It really does nothing. Um, our, Our key marker points when it comes to when we're seeing Bupe be successful for reducing mortality and increasing retention and recovery is nine months to a year. Uh, once we hit those, once we hit those two markers, those are key markers for doing bupe maintenance. Then you really have reduced your risk of uh, return to use um, and dying from an overdose by using. If you get to that year point, uh, that should be an evaluation point from a medical doctor. And you know, I hear a lot of the times that bupe doesn't work. Suboxone does not work. Um, and I asked the person, explain this to me. Well, I tried to, to, to come off it on my own. I'm like, okay, well, let's stop. Let's stop right there. Okay, let's examine your statement. I tried to come off Suboxone on my own. I, wor- I, I, I took Suboxone. Um, I did it on my own. All right, so let me ask you a question. You're going to play the person that okay. told that to me. So if you went to a 12-step meeting, you didn't get a sponsor, you didn't work steps or you work steps yourself as your own sponsor um you didn't get a service job you basically didn't do anything you were supposed to do does that mean 12 steps doesn't work well no well okay because 12 steps work because you know they work if you work them right so if you want to successfully 
work a, a suboxone maintenance program, you have to do the same type of principles that you would do in a 12-step program. You have to talk to somebody and work with somebody that has successfully gone on suboxone and successfully titrated off it with minimal side effects. Right. Same principle. And it, you know what, going back, I don't know, I know you're not a program person and I'm not so much anymore, but it goes back to the third step. No, I'm not a, it's not that I'm not a program person. Let me make that clear. It's not something that worked for me. Right. But I have no, lots but just of currently. friends yeah. that No, are. I'm saying, but it all, a lot of this stuff, I will revert back to the third step. It is taking your will out of the picture and taking suggestions from somebody that's done it before. I didn't go to, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, you know, um, go to my first trial you know, when I was a lawyer, um, and just show up and argue a case. I went to law school first. Right. I, I learned from people that had done this before. So if you're going to go on Suboxone, don't do it on your own. Get involved in a program. Talk to people that were successful on getting on Suboxone and getting off it and take their suggestions. If you try to do it on your own, you will probably fail. That does not mean that Suboxone does not work. Just like if you try to work a 12-step program on your own and fail, that does not mean that 12-step programs doesn't work. You know? And there's too much of that attitude that I see. And it's also, I think, why we have other medications out there. It's why yeah. we have multiple pathways. Yeah. And it amazes me how many people will work a humble program that feel that their way is the only way and everybody's recovery needs to look like theirs. Yeah. And I think that tends to be a major problem that we say. It's a huge problem. And a huge problem is ego. Yeah. And people feel like that if somebody recovers differently than I did, it's a threat to my recovery. If you can, if you can stop shooting heroin and still smoke weed and get drunk and, and you know, um, I'm jealous <laughs> a little bit, but it's not a threat. Right. And people perceive it as a threat. Right. And I think it's just figuring that out. I, th I remember... I don't know, I have friends that uh, I used to deal to, and people tell me that these people don't exist, but back when I dealt meth, I had uh, a couple, they had kids, and they got four weeks, they worked together, they got four weeks of vacation a year. Yeah. And two weeks, they would take their kids on vacation, yeah. and the other two weeks, uh, they'd take it every six months. They would drop their kids off at grandparents, come to me, get an eight ball and syringes, yeah. They would party for five days, sleep for two, go pick their kids back up, and then six months later, they would use meth again. There's people out there that exist. It's like we get, you know, um, we get a little bit of uh, flack from running a syringe access program because people will come into a syringe access program and bring their children. And people are like, oh, how dare you? You should call DCFS on these people. Well, should I call DCFS and every parent that brings their kid into a liquor store? Because liquor kills more people than, than opioids. Close to three times as many. Yeah. Actually. So, yeah. There are, so you just named it. There are people out there that can responsibly parent. And juice. Use, use, once, use occasionally, recreationally, and, and put the kids over grandma and grandpa's house. And use. Those people exist. And I think that's where sometimes we... It's this idea that if you're a heroin addict, you're a habitual everyday user, you're going to neglect your kids because that's all you see in the news. And, you know? I, and I think that's also why we have these knuckleheads out there that are like, well, why do you need medication? Why do you need treatment? Mm -hmm. I, I used and I, I decided I didn't want to anymore and I just stopped because there's levels oh my God. and there's so many oh factors I love that, that come into I, a substance use I disorder. absolutely love that argument. And my, my retort to the argument is, all right, so um, there are people out there you know, or when they say it's not a disease because I stopped on my own. Um, there are people out there that have hepatitis C. Their body has certain antibodies that can cure 
the hepatitis C and they need no medication. So does that mean we should tell all the people that are dying in the hospital of hepatitis C, well, so-and-so um, cured hep C on their own without any medication, so get out of that hospital bed. Take out that IVs. Walk it off, cubby bear. Right. I mean, that's, that's their attitude. They're so ignorant um, because, you know, hepatitis C is a disease that can clear itself. Other people will die from it. Substance use can turn into a mental health disorder that people will die from it without medical intervention, without medical help, and other people can just stop and walk away. Two exactly same scenarios. And it's possible even with a diagnosis of substance use disorder that's accurate, some people can. It just There's so many environmental factors that play into it. Yeah, there are. It's like diabetes. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, Ned Presnell did a presentation and he looked at, he showed a diabetes study that was done where they talked to people who just found out that they were borderline uh -huh. and they were given options. Hey, you can start going to these support groups. Uh, and, and what they found is it was like thousands of people in the study and what they found was 3% of the people yeah. were able to make lifestyle changes on their own and not develop type 2, type two diabetes. 8% yeah. of the people through the support groups were able to not develop type 2 diabetes. So if you were to go talk to that 8% of the people in the study or the 11% of the people in the study that didn't develop type 2 diabetes and go, you know, if you find out that you're borderline type 2 diabetes, do you need medication? They're going to be like, oh, heck no. I didn't need it. All you got to do is go to the meetings. Yeah. All you have to do is want it bad enough. Yeah. But that ignores the other 89% of the people in the study that yeah. ended up developing yeah. type, type 2 diabetes, diabetes and needed medication. Yeah. So we can't look at, at a small outlier, and I think that's what happens. That's where that anecdotal stuff comes in, yeah. is people looking anecdotal. And once again, I feel like we've gotten away from harm reduction, but we're talking about harm reduction. Harm reduction at its core, just so people can understand, is examining where a person is at in their life with their substance use or whatever, and saying, okay, well, you're not ready to make complete 180 degree change, but let's examine where you're at, the harm you're risking yourself, the harm you're risking society, and let's see how I can help you, okay? You're using dirty needles, you're at risk for hepatitis C and HIV. Um, you're also at risk for spreading those diseases to people that don't use substances that you may or may not have unprotected sex with. So right. let's engage you in a syringe access program to reduce that risk. Uh, you're using a loan. Uh, you're not carrying Narcan. You're at risk for death. Let's examine that. All right, you have chaotic substance use, and you don't want to stop yet. Um, are you willing to stop the opioids? Um, I mean, I could stop the opioids. Okay, well, I'm going to put you on Suboxone for now, um, which will reduce your chance of using opioids or dying from an opioid overdose um, so you can continue to use cocaine, alcohol, um, until we get to a point where those are two substances that you want to stop using. It can't, we can't force all or none on people because right. if they're not ready to, to do that, um, we're not going to be able to engage them in any services and help them at all. Right. Well, it's kind of, you know, I, I don't want to look at it this way, but I look at it this way. Uh, it's no different than that person who has got, as I sit here and drink my Monster Rehab, it's no different than no, somebody I check who's, my cell phone ten who, times. who's got a, a cup of coffee in one hand and a cigarette and a, or a vape in the other yeah. that's talking about people shouldn't be using mind-altering substances to get off of drugs. Yeah. Those are mind-altering substances, and yet we, we've given them uh, an okay. Yeah. And I understand people are like, well, nobody's dying from that. Okay, how about sugar? Wait, nobody's sugar dying kills. from energy drinks? 
BS. More people die from energy drinks than die from Suboxone. And nicotine? Oh, my goodness. More. We won't even get into it. Yeah. Don't look at me like that. I only drink two a day. <laughs> but more people die from energy drinks than Suboxone. More people die from acetaminophen than Kratom. Um, I mean, the numbers are just, you know, support, completely don't support anything most of these people are saying. And I think it's that ignorance that also makes people opposed to harm reduction. And I'll throw out one more statistic um, that we haven't mentioned yet that I really liked. It's about the uh, syringe access sites. You know, when the U.S. Surgeon General's report came out, it literally said that communities that have syringe access sites get people into treatment three to five times faster. Well, they're 35, they're five times more, people that use our program are five times more likely to enter drug and alcohol treatment. Because what have you found? You know, I think at one time you had a statistic um, where you had found that X number of people within a certain amount of time of coming in and obtaining their first syringe had come back and asked for help getting into treatment. Amanda, what do you think? 20, 25% of our participants we put into treatment or do you think it's more? So about 20, 25% of our, our participants we put into treatment. Now, my number was much higher when it was a smaller program. But we, as we expand our number, I stay is going to stay around the 30% range. Okay. And that's awesome because a lot of times, too, what people forget is that harm reduction is meeting people that are never going to get have somebody meet with them otherwise. Yeah. And it's showing compassion to people that probably are never going to get compassionate care anywhere else. No, and I said it in a some post article or whatnot, that, you know, it's not about this nine-cent needle I'm giving somebody. It's about the human connections and relationships they create when they walk into this office. We did karaoke Friday night. We had active people actively using drugs come in and hit the mic and have a good time. We, it made them feel human. People that are unhoused right now, living in Vacos, got to come in on a Friday night, be around a bunch of loving, good people, sing karaoke. That moment of happiness, that could be that conscious shift where they're like, I want that life again. But too many people shun drug users. It's like, oh, you can't come here. You can't come here because you're using drugs. No, no, come on, sing some karaoke, have some coffee. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do a game night, play some Cards Against Humanity, do something. You give people that feeling that they're humans again, that somebody loves them and cares about them, and they're invited and welcome and not shunned by society because they have a mental health disorder. Their odds of wanting recovery are gonna skyrocket. And that's basic. That's psychology right. 101. And I think still that's my struggle where I'm at is I look at uh, it's sometimes I forget that uh, RCC every RCC has uh, a different focus yeah. you know so I will look at one person's RCC and be like man look at all of the homeless people this one's meeting look at the active people this one's meeting and, and I think instead of comparing we need to try to do what we do best but at the same time remember that harm reduction should be a part of everything we do that's true you know, it doesn't matter if you're doing prevention, if you're doing early intervention, if you're doing treatment, if you're doing recovery supports. I think harm reduction should always be part of that discussion. Yeah, because I mean, it does, let's not even talk about. I mean, we talk about diet. We talk about okay, well, you're you're going to uh, have cross addictions when you get out of treatment. We all do it. Sex, right? Caffeine, nicotine, shopping. You're going so okay. So we realize that these are activities you're going to engage in post-treatment, early recovery. So why, why don't we examine how those activities can, can can reduce harm that's causing to you? Let's work on your your intake on your energy drinks. Let's work on how much coffee you drink. Let's, let's work on your sugar intake. Let's not 
We're good. All, all harm reduction. I'm just saying. Right. No, I'm fine. Yeah. I know you're fine. I know you're fine. <laughs> I know. We'll talk offline. Right. Isn't that what everybody says, though? I mean, whenever you start hitting on something that they actually partake in, partake in. I see the same thing with, uh, of course, we already talked about the fact that I come from a, a Christian background. I see the same thing in the church where people will look at, well, okay or excuse their sin or their negative behavior, yeah. but then sit there and look down on somebody else and judge them as being worse, right? Because I can make 10 trips through the Golden Corral buffet line, and I'm fine, but you over there smoking your cigarette, you over there shooting heroin, oh my gosh, you're horrible. You're a horrible person. You know, and until we can realize that we're all people and every single one of us make Sometimes you don't make the, the healthiest choices. Sometimes mm-hmm. you don't make the best choices. And that doesn't mean that everybody doesn't deserve the same grace that we get for our own screw-ups. Yeah. Aren't there, aren't there seven deadly sins, not just one? Absolutely. And I don't think drug use was one of those. Isn't that weird? It's, uh, uh, well, no, I know it's not. You know, but One uh, of them can be inferred, I believe, in them. But uh, gluttony... Yeah, 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 definitely one of them. Yeah, gluttony's up there. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when we have a 300-pound pastor that's talking about people that use drugs are going to burn in hell, I think maybe he should look in that extra-wide mirror and realize that he might be part of that list, too. So I I guess kind of in wrapping up, is there any uh, nuggets of wisdom, any last things that you would want to say to the people listening? Um I'm trying to think where a drug addiction would fall into the seven deadly sins. <laughs> uh, wrath and pride. Wrath. We, 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 we could, if we're, if we're doing a theological study right here, wrath could be um, trans, uh, transferred over to resentments. All right. right. And that's all you need to start a meeting, right? Resentment right. and a pot of coffee? Yeah, so, I mean, wrath could be resentments and pride could be self-pride ego. Um, that drives a lot of our addiction or lack of self-acceptance because we put that pride there uh, because we have no self-acceptance. So I can infer two of the deadly sins uh, being, be, being somewhat uh, correlated to drug use. Um, I'm a Buddhist Jew that follows the Jedi Council, by the way, so ignore my Christian theology. Um, I'm trying to follow all that. that just <laughs> but I'm just saying. So um, uh, uh, passing words. Um, you know, you know, this world, you know, God, was it Locke? I think it was John Locke. You know, the world is short, brutish, and cruel. I think it was Locke or Hobbes. And he wrote Leviathan. God, I should know. I have tons of philosophy background. Um, it's, getting, it's getting more brutish. Maybe not as short. Our life expectancy is longer. But the world is getting more brutish, and it's our fault. Um, social media unfortunately has not connected the world it's more disconnected them and it's created a lot of apathy uh, where people feel the need to say things behind the protection of a keyboard that in some situations might get them hit in the face Uh, in some situations might get a restraining order but they feel the safety behind that keyboard to say some pretty horrible things especially to the parents that lost their child to an overdose we as a country we as a race are better than this we need to start acting better. We need to teach our children better. Um, you know, empathy, compassion, forgiveness um, is what we need more of and not what we are seeing now. Um, there are way too many comments um, about, you know, just let them die. You know, why 
why do I have to pay for my insulin and the heroin addict doesn't have to pay for the Narcan? Okay, this is human life. This isn't tit for tat. You know, we, 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 there, there's a common enemy when it comes to that, and that's pharmaceutical companies jacking prices because the patent for insulin was sold for $1. Um, by the inventors to keep the cost down so people could afford it. So if we were working together, um, but, you know, there is, there is intentional division sometimes among our leaders um, that we, we need to be aware of. And I'm not trying to get all conspiracy on you, but they do, the more we fight against each other, the more that they can, you know, you know go, you know, start a war somewhere for oil. See, and now you're making me want to pop in again. I was going to just let you finish, but... I do want to say every time I see that, it drives me crazy. Uh, why is my insulin okay? For starters, you know what? The problem is it's an, it's an, not an either-or problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, they can both be a problem. The, the fact that your insulin is $750 is a huge problem, but yeah. that doesn't make insul, uh, Narcan any less. Yeah. Um, a, I have been Narcan back to life three different times, yeah. and trust me, the hospital charged me out the wazoo. For that Narcan. Oh yeah, they did. And the other thing I tell people is, man, if you're this excited uh, uh, about insulin, do what a lot of us that uh, give out free Narcan do: have fundraisers, raise that money, go buy some insulin, and give it away. Hey Matt, how many insulin pens I got right now? What? How many insulin pens we got right now? Six. Six. Yeah. So. So yes, you guys do give out free insulin. Isn't that amazing? You know. So, but yeah, it goes back to people are looking for problems uh, instead of looking for solutions. People are looking for reasons to be offended and to see themselves as Victim. other than yeah. instead of looking for ways for us to get along and work together. Yeah, but that's it. That's all I got. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Chad. Yeah. I appreciate your time. And I'm sure I'll get back here again to talk to you about multiple things. Please um, do. Have a great day. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. There's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, B-L-I-R underscore N-P-O. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week. If you're a Disney Plus subscriber and you're watching The Mandalorian, Jack and I have a podcast for you. Every week, we'll discuss the latest episode of The Mandalorian and talk about other great content and maybe some not-so-great content on Disney Plus as well. As two lifelong Star Wars fans, we have a ton of fun geeking out over all the little details of the show, and we want you to join us every Monday. So search for Disney Plus Reviews. That's Disney P-L-U-S Reviews. Hey, Phil, how about that, Baby Yoda? Baby Yoda says... What's the podcast?